You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. This is a weekly podcast, but during February, we're doing two episodes per week, just in case you didn't already know. Urban forestry is defined as the care and management of tree populations in an urban setting. While this isn't something that's on the forefront of most people's minds, I can assume that if you're a fan of this podcast, it's certainly relevant for you. In this episode, we'll be discussing the involvement of communities in urban forestry projects, and our guests are Russell Horsey, a business director and consulting arborist, and Terry Reichlin, a consulting arborist both from a small family business called Woodland Dwelling. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Good morning. (laughs) Hello. Can you guys tell us a bit about your roles within the urban forest and what does a typical day look like for you? All right, Russ, do you want to go first? uh... Yeah, okay. So I'm not sure there is a typical day uh, as an urban forester. Um, uh, My background before we started working with communities was working for a city. Uh, and I guess a, an urban forester's day in the city is likely to come in, get teams out pruning trees, planting trees, uh, and then dealing with requests for service, which is the dreaded word for complaints as it's been rebranded. Um, <laughs> but I guess now we do a lot of work with communities and a lot of work with cities. So um, our day can vary. Uh, we could be at a public meeting. Uh, we could be running a tree planting event. We could be in talking to schools about trees and getting them out planting. So um the, the role has a, a massive variation. And Terry, what would you say? What does a typical day look like for you? Um, so now because of COVID, it's a little bit different in my, in my words. So I, I tend to work on the software side of things that our business is doing. We're partnering with an American company that developed a tree management software. So at the moment, I'm just helping UK, the UK tree crowd to kind of get acquainted with it and possibly start using it because the tree world has some, well, um, you know, there's there's some there's some ways in which the tree world is a little bit behind, and one of those is technology and the general widespread use of of tech in terms of managing its trees. So at the moment, pretty much because we're mostly on lockdown and community work is not really on the cards, I I've been just doing that, you know, like reaching out to people and. And there's, you know, Zoom meetings every day and, and talking about software and talking about what, what other people would need and, and stuff like that. So that's, um, that's pretty much my days. So in your words, what is a community-led urban forestry project? So urban forestry, as, as Terry said, you know, it's slightly behind in terms of technology and, and it's slightly behind in the UK in terms of public engagement. If, you, if we look around the world, we look to the States, I guess, for some of our inspiration. Many cities have their, their urban forestry department and they get on and manage the city's trees. Uh, and historically, there hasn't been that much engagement. The engagement has probably been the professionals saying to the, to the residents, we're, we're removing your trees because of X, Y, and Z, or, or we're reducing your trees. Actually, COVID has brought about a massive change. People have been stuck at home. People are now understanding, appreciating their urban forest, whereas partially in the past, they'd have just walked through it. They'd have enjoyed it, but they didn't really interact. So more people want to engage and actually the sector needs to engage more to explain what we do. Urban forestry has the massive potential to, to help our cities in terms of flood alleviation. Today here in Wales, it's raining. I'm looking out over floodplains full of water. You know, trees hold that water back and stop towns of flooding. But if you live in a big city, potentially, actually, what you might want from trees is shade. And so 
we need to find a way for the sector to be able to work with the public to to harness that that energy and you know harness the want to to improve the the world around them now which which probably haven't been there 10 15 years ago and so it's also a bit of a process of involving the community not just a top down approach of you know this is what the urban foresters are saying yeah we've we've had a few crunch points here in the UK many people will have heard of the the, the Sheffield tree felling massacre where a, a large contract for highway trees was issued and as part of that there was probably limited engagement from an urban forester it came more from a highways perspective and and it led to the proposal to, to to remove a lot of trees as part of that initial contract which led to a lot of public outcry and over a long saga where you know hundreds of residents have been involved in in saying that shouldn't happen the city is now looking at rewriting its urban forestry management plan it, it's now looking at engaging with residents and it's trying to harness what turned out to be quite a an expensive battle, both the city and the residents, who both probably wanted their city to be green, but they were both coming at it from a very different perspective. And people ended up being arrested, people ended up in court. But you know, now the groups and the city are working together to, to redesign their plan. So that's one extreme. And we work with residents around the country who, who want to engage with their urban forests and want to see more trees planted. And, and actually, by working with residents, you can bring a lot of new skill sets in to your team. You know, Urban tree teams tend to be quite small, they tend to have a limited specialisms, you know, whereas working with residents, you get to work with people in PR, you get to work with people in finance, you get to work with businesses. All of those things can bring additional things in to the city. They can bring in funding, you know, they can raise the profile. So there isn't a one model fits all, but, uh, you know, it, there is a need for more and more people to engage with, with the residents in a different way. And the residents, they, they are interested, you know, like when I was in Toronto, I took part in this pilot project where we, as as young women, so I was, I think, 23 at the time, we had to engage a group of, you know, basically residents that lived around a certain park in Toronto. We had to, you know, do a, a tree inventory and get a mulching event done and then establish like an adopt a park tree program. So, and that was done just by basically us, the volunteers. And, you know, people were interested, like everybody came out, everybody did mulching, everybody was really into knowing what kind of trees are growing in their parks and so on. So if you, if you like empower the people to, you know, to take part in it, then they definitely will. It's, you know, like people love being outside and, and especially what I've, from what I've seen with my work with Russell and working with schools as well, like people love, you know, you know, being outside and taking care of trees and planting trees as well. So yeah, and it's it's an area which is, is it's difficult to get trees established. You know, the the more urban, the bigger your city, the harder it is to get trees established, and, and it's an expensive process. If you if you do the process well, it costs money, and actually working with residents can can help reduce that money as well as bringing in money from sponsorship. But you know, engaging with residents, getting them out, helping you plant, fosters a sense of ownership. You know, we've I've been doing this now for about twenty years, and wherever you engage with residents and schools, you get less vandalism. You get less people coming in and attacking the trees. I don't know why, but you put a new tree into a, in a city park. And if there isn't that community engagement, the, the chances are it'll get vandalized by teenagers or dogs or something. Whereas, you know, if you engage with young children, there's less chance of that happening because their older siblings that might be bored, and it probably is just down to boredom, are unlikely to attack or vandalize trees that their, their younger siblings have planted. So, there are loads of benefits, you know, and I'd like to take things one stage further and get, you know, residents out doing young tree pruning to help those trees get a good form to, to become those bigger trees, something that most city departments just don't have the budgets to do. And, and actually with a bit of training, you know, there's no reason why residents with supervision can't potentially go out and do young tree pruning. That's not saying they get it 
climb using ropes. That's, you know, doing stuff on the ground but with secateurs. But, you know, little bits of stuff like that can make a massive difference to having a tree survive. And I can only imagine how that would feel as a young person, you know, growing up with a tree that you've helped shape. I mean, that must foster, as you say, such a sense of like ownership and, and you know, a responsibility as well. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, we've been on so many schemes where, you know, you, you, you start planting in the morning, you'll plant with schools, you'll plant with local residence groups, and you're finishing tidying up at the end of the day, school's finished. I remember one, Brandon Hill in Bristol, a city where I ran the tree team, and at the end of the day, this young girl was dragging her mum up this really steep hill to show her the tree that we planted in the morning. So, mm. yeah, it's a great way to inspire young people. It, you know, it's really important. When we're talking about sort of these long time frames that is a tree's life, how important and beneficial is it mm. for communities to become involved in urban forestry rather than, you know, allowing the council to take the control of it? Well, it's beneficial for the trees as well, right? Like if if they are being watered on a regular basis, if they're being mulched, there is a higher chance for the tree to actually survive and make it through that establishment phase, especially in urban areas where I'm going to draw from my experience in Toronto again, like the average lifespan of a tree was eight years, like, you know, from putting it onto the sidewalk wow. because mm. it just wasn't getting the attention that it needed. And mm. and Russell's come up with a brilliant way to actually get at least that like regular watering done by giving watering cans to nearby businesses and nearby residents. And that's what we do with our projects. Now we give them watering cans because they're more inclined to actually go out and water the tree during the heat wave that we have, you know, like the weather is getting increasingly extreme in the summer and in the winter. And and trees need that extra push, you know, that bit of help with your 40 liters of water every week. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's really important because then the bigger the tree is, the more benefits it's going to provide, right? Whether it's, mm-hmm. you know, habitat, whether it's air, you know, cooling, whether it's air filtration and so on. It's just better for everyone to kind of have the community involved in order to get the tree to its maximum potential size. I mean, Daniel, it must be interesting where you are because like, you're much hotter than we are at the moment. So the UK <laughs> doesn't have air conditioning units attached to most buildings. You know, and, and in, in essence, it would be horrible if in 10 years time as our climate warms, we end up with there when potentially if you plant trees, they can act naturally to cool the air. So... You know, that's a good example of how if the UK gets its climate adaptation correct, you know, we could, we don't have to have that, that, that technology because actually trees are doing it for us. Absolutely. I was at the Yamundi markets in Queensland the other day with my wife and, you know, on one side of the road in the markets, you have these giant trees, there's a bunch of fig trees and all sorts of other trees. And it was beautiful though. You could feel the breeze and it was just quite lovely. And then you sort of cross this road and it's... It just, it's completely different because the trees, they're probably a few years old, let's say. They're just really small and the heat difference, it must have been at least five degrees and it felt like 10. So, you know, and Australia has a great cafe culture. I was lucky enough to be out in Australia this time last year. We Mm. literally flew into Australia this time last year, having been out in New Zealand with the family. And, you know, the cafe culture was amazing where you've got those old trees and you can sit out because you have have the Mm. climate for it, assuming you're not sat on the air, you know, on the sidewalk with the tiny trees. You want to be sat with the big ones. That's right. Totally. We had on the podcast uh, in episode 18, John Parker, who's the director for the Arboricultural Association. And he sort of made the point that we need to be thinking in tree time, not in human time when we're talking about arboriculture. And and he's very true. That is is very true. I mean, uh, the the trees that Terry and I plant, we are unlikely to enjoy much of, you know, 
where I've worked in cities, I'm enjoying the Victorian genera- the Victorian legacy. You know, trees that were planted by the Victorians were the trees that were massive in our parks and, and in the, across the UK and are the, are the ones I'm enjoying. So, yeah, you have to think longer f- time frames. And, and, and that's part of the issue at the moment. We're, we're in a bit of a numbers game. You know, governments like to be planting millions of trees. Charities like to be planting millions of trees. And actually, as an urban forester, we need to start thinking about canopy. We need to start thinking about making sure those trees establish, as, you know, as Terry said earlier, you know, eight years life expectancy. Is that a good use of time and money to keep replacing a tree every eight years? You know, it's not, is it, Terry? No. Every time, there's like, what, four or five years every time a po- you know, political party wants to get elected and, and the promises they throw out at us, it just doesn't fit with what the tree needs, right? What trees need for development. And that's just what has been really disappointing over you know, during my adult years where I learned that, you know, things are very much more short term perspective in terms of, you know, rather than having a long term, you know, long term goals and making, you know, foundations for for something that's going to benefit people in, you know, maybe a hundred years or so. People just think way too much on the short term instead of on the long term. And it's it's not really beneficial for for anyone really. So I think if you if there are any of your listeners that are looking to fund tree planting projects, then you know talk to the people you're funding and, and check you're not falling into that numbers game trap. You know, Daniel, you talked about the fig trees. You know, I guess planting one of those fig trees in a city centre location could cost you you know a few thousand dollars, whereas putting in a small hedge, you know, could cost a few hundred. But you know, which one potentially has the most benefit to the most people? And if you're a funder out there, funders are still about numbers. They want you know numbers are good things to report. Whereas you know it's less exciting to say. We spent $100,000 putting in 10 fig trees in the city center market. It doesn't sound as exciting, but actually in 20 years' time, that will have a much better impact on an urban environment. So I, I guess my plea to listeners out there that are looking to fund things is you know, mm. is to look where your money's going. And, and mm. for people that do fund these bigger projects, they need to start thinking about canopy. They need to start thinking about where people live and, and how their funding can help our cities adapt. And how communities can also help to lower those costs as well by involving them. Oh, completely. I mean, the, the, you know, in the UK, I mean, we'd probably spend three to four hundred pounds establishing a street tree per tree. And, you know, even when I was running Bristol, we hadn't been giving out watering cans. It was a, you know, silly thing. You know, you, you know you're looking at spending maybe 10 or 20 pounds giving out watering cans to some local residents to water a tree, but it can make a massive difference in terms of, you know, reducing losses. So yeah the, yeah, the more communities we can engage, the more people we can help, we can lower those costs and, and just have a bigger impact. So can you define the term stakeholder for me? I, yeah, that's a difficult, that's a really difficult one because um, most people define stakeholders as someone that would live right next to the tree. But actually, in many cases, the stakeholder could be much wider. You know, do you walk past where the tree is going or where the trees are and the way to work? You know, is it near your school? Is it providing shade to your school? And I think I think that's where cities can sometimes fall into the trap of if we if we do consultation, we just tell the people that live right next to the tree. And, and at the moment, we we struggle to get to that wider audience of stakeholders that might, you know, appreciate that avenue of trees. And I think that's where technology can help. You know, as a sector, we're, we're, we haven't been very good at technology. You know, there are a few people out there on Twitter and Instagram promoting what the sector does, but they're a very small majority, minority. And actually, I guess with the younger generations that, that come into urban forestry, there's an exciting opportunity for, to help shape that and help get to more people. And I think by using technology, we can definitely start to get to more people. You know, even simple things like, you know, a QR code on a tree so that 
people can engage with the tree, find out what the tree is, find out how big it is. You know, we have ways now of valuing trees to look at their benefits. And I think, you know, talking to technology, that could potentially help get across to a much wider stakeholders. What do you think, Terry? Absolutely, yes. You know, as as a millennial, I tend to look up everything online before I go and do or see it or whatever. So, and I have a multitude of plant identification apps on my phone. <laughs> so, sure, if we kind of tend, if we involve trees in a way and, you know, turn them into something that we can, and I'm going to say this word, consume as as information through our, you know, through our devi- devices. And it sounds, you know, it doesn't, it sounds very disconnected, but if we can connect to the tree through our our main meat, like, you know, the medium's the message, right? And like our generation and, and especially Gen Z, they tend to be connected, you know, attached to their phones 24-7. So if there's any way we can basically serve serve them, <laughs> serve them or us or me, basically, the trees on our on our on our phones, then I'm sure there's going to be much more interest about it, which would trickle into, you know, the real life scenario. And, and that's what I love working with Terry is, is, is that we come up with ideas and and then Terry's like, oh, have you heard of this app? And I, I'm, to be honest, I'm like, nope. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and so in, in a way, I'm also part of the problem, I guess, you know, I'm my mid forties. And so I wasn't very electronically astute. You know, I don't, you know, I was around when the first computers started being used at university. So it's not a natural thing for me. And actually I'm on quite a few platforms now, which I wasn't three or four years ago. So, you know, there's still an awful lot more we can do to engage with, with the public. Yeah, I think every every group of people would need like a specific way to reach them, right? And Terry, when we're talking about stakeholders, you know, these people don't all necessarily agree with each other on what the best processes are or what the best options are for the urban forest. Is it difficult to develop a strategy that satisfies all stakeholders? Absolutely, because like, you know, different stakeholders might have different goals or different way that they're looking at things, right? Like councils might want it to be as cheap as possible, but deliver the max benefits. And then you might have people that are uh, going to be emotionally connected to some trees and so on. And everybody has a different way of, of, of receiving and, and giving, you know, information tasks or, or, or whatever. And you need to, you really need to engage everybody because if you leave somebody out of the process, then it's going to be really difficult in the long run. And I think that for every situation, you need to have, you know, a custom, like bespoke solution. And you you can't just put a blanket arrangement for everything, right? You can't just say, right, let's just plant trees everywhere. Like you need to kind of be aware of where the communities might need their trees plant, you know, where they might need their trees more, what types of trees, because there's also different, like cult- there's cultural differences between like mm. what, you know, what trees people really want as well. Or even if they want trees, I mean, I remember. So, I mean, Terry and I were lucky in that we both studied out in Toronto, uh, right. slightly, slightly a decade apart. But you know, <laughs> at, at my time in Toronto, a big scheme was going in through Chinatown, and there'd been very little engagement with the community. And actually, the community didn't want trees outside their houses and shops because they were worried about bad spirits. So those trees Ooh. were not looked after. Yeah. You know, so that's a great example mm-hmm. of a of a great intent, a lot of money spent doing you know high value engineering, but actually. The residents, because of lack of engagement, just didn't really want trees. That's right. And if if you go next door to Little Italy, where you have Italian, you know, people with Italian backgrounds and and Mediterranean backgrounds, like there you have trees that are, you know, the trees that are preferred there might be fruit trees and orchard trees because they see it 
differently, you know, for like food and stuff. So mm-hmm. there's definitely different ways that different groups of people receive, want to receive trees, you know, in their, in their areas. So that needs to be considered as well. And you're never going to please everyone all the time. I was lucky enough to be involved in a scout jamboree a while back, and uh, we were given a t-shirt which had about uh, two or three hundred smiley faces on it, and there was one sad face hidden in there. And, and the moral of the story <laughs> is that you, you can never please everybody all of the time. And I think that the other challenge for cities is is that there will always be lobbyists. There will always be people that shout very loudly, and sometimes they can be overheard over everyone else. And I think it's really important with any strategy when you're engaging with the public is 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 to to try and take a balanced view and not be swayed just because somebody shouts louder. And I think that then the more people we can get to, the easier it is to make sure that doesn't happen. Absolutely. And also, I'd like to make the point as well, sometimes developments do need to go ahead. And, you know, you have what are called the NIMBYs as well, you know, maybe the best thing for the community is that that road goes in. Yeah, that's an interesting one. And part of that is because the trees haven't been valued. And and so it's very it's been very difficult. You know, if you if you remove a, a light post, a light lamp column, you know, it's very easy to say that costs X amount of money to replace. And, you know, and if we want to have light in this new development, we have to put more in. You take out a big tree and historically it's been very difficult to value those. And, and we've come up with ways now of valuing the replacement value using things like iTree, which looks at across a city, at, you know, benefits of trees. And we've got systems like Cava over in the UK, which values individual publicly owned trees. And and I think, yeah, there are NIMBYs out there and development should go ahead, but actually sometimes it's gone ahead because people haven't valued the benefits of a big tree. And actually when you mm-hmm. put those values on, developers potentially will then look at things and change their development. So trees don't have to stop development. In fact, there's really great developments around massive trees, mm-hmm. but we need to be able to explain in a way that developers can understand that actually retaining trees means you get you know, a canopy straight away. That makes such a difference, mm-hmm. you know. There's been research showing that your property price increases by 10% if you live in a tree-lined street. So from a developer's perspective, retaining some of those old big trees could help them sell for more, you know, as well as making it a much nicer place to move into for residents when they do. And sometimes that's a case of just sort of like tweaking the architecture or tweaking the design in a way that sort of just moves around or with the tree. Yes. So yeah, there's been a, a quite a high profile case recently in Hackney uh, where the English tree of the year, which was a large London plane tree, was proposed to be removed. And there was a lot of uproar. There were lots of protests uh, and the trees come down. And actually mm. the developer came out, I think last week and said, actually, if we'd have known this tree was this important a year ago, we could have tweaked the architecture and the development to retain the tree. But that tree is now gone mm. because you know, it hadn't been valued at the time. It hadn't, it hadn't been looked at as a, as a public asset properly. Mm. Completely. What do you think, Terry? Yeah, I think I think it's a real shame that trees are not really considered before the design stage. I used to work for a civil engineering consultancy, you know, before a couple of years ago, and and there it was just you know it was me going on tree surveys, determining what trees are of what quality for purposes of you know development and and construction. And a lot of the times, the tree survey that I was doing was just a formality at the end, just to tick a box, right? And that obviously is very painful because if you go there, you see these great trees (laughs) and you're kind of going there knowing that they probably won't make it. Obviously, there have been instances Mm -hmm. where they had to change the design because the importance of the tree. But I think, you know, when you make when you have a plan to build something, you should probably go in before before you even start designing. And it should I think it should be that case before you start designing so you can design around it instead of you know, doing your design, getting all the work done, and then realizing, oh, 
there's that tree that, you know, could have been retained, but we're going to take it down because it doesn't fit our current design that we worked on without considering the tree in the first place. So um, that's that's kind of my thought on that one. Yeah, if we take into account the trees before we sort of start the planning, that that really should be something that's taken on the, in the initial stages. Look, you and I both know that not every tree is going to be able to be saved, but that needs to be taken into account at the start with people who are professional and people who are qualified to be sort of giving advice at that stage, in the initial stage. And I, and I wonder if that's partly why there's been a lot less public engagement because professionals have been worried that it's impeding on what they're professionally doing. And I think you really summed it up well there, that you, you need the public engagement to tell you the direction of travel. But at the end of the day, the decisions still have to be made by professionals. You know, they're still going to make those final decisions. And, you know, there's, a, there's some great examples of where the communities got involved at that planning stage. You know, they, they come around and they, they tell the council, you know, what are their top 20 favorite trees in that district? You know, it doesn't give them any extra protection, but it does mean that when development comes around, the council's already aware of what's important to the community. So little projects like that are ways that community can get involved. It's not a statutory process. You know, some places have done it as, as competitions. You know, what are, what are our top 20 trees and our 50 trees are put forward in the public vote? But again, all those little bits of information really help city foresters in terms of making future decisions. So I guess when we're talking about old trees versus establishing new trees, you know, we've sort of talked about how old trees take a long time to grow. But I'd like to now go back to young trees. In episode 18 of the podcast, as I mentioned, we had on John Parker from the Arboricultural Association. And one of the little nuggets that he dropped was that, you know, it's not just enough to plant the right tree in the right place. We also need to plant the right tree in the right place for the right reason and with the right aftercare. Can you just touch on what that means to you, both of you? So John was absolutely right. You need to, you know, right tree, right place, right after care for the right reasons. And that's, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Um, you know, a lot of times you see just trees being put in the ground and, and that's it, just left there, right? And that's, that's the issue with, with a lot of, you know, a lot of developments and stuff. You just don't really get that aftercare that's necessary for the tree to establish itself. And if you do get some care, it might not be as adequate. Let's take streamers, for example, right? Like you put a tree into a park and then you get people that, you know, mow the lawns and trees are damaged. And that is a very, very, very common issue happening around young trees. Or you put a tree in, you put, you know, the stakes and and the tape around it to kind of stabilize it. And then you just, you know, leave it there, never come back to get it, which then girdles the tree and it kills it in the long term. And that happens in forestry too, like you leave the tubes in, never take them out. So you kind of need to go back and you need to check that you're you're doing the right thing for the tree. Because if you forget and the tools that you're putting in and that you're spending money on in order to help the tree establish, if you just leave them there, then they're not going to really do the job, right? They're going to do it the exact opposite. So there's there's kind of, there's kind of, you know, there's that to look at as well. You need to really take that into consideration, you know, three, five, seven, ten years in, in advance, you know, in, into the future to really make make a difference. And well, unfortunately, we see it all the time and, you know, we just see plant and forget almost or plant with a small amount of watering and, and hope that it survives and hope that it rains. But, you know, we're seeing drier and drier summers and springs here. And, and so trees are getting more stressed and we're seeing higher losses. And actually, if you're spending three, 300 pounds, 350 pounds on a tree, then actually, if you maybe spent 400 pounds, 420 pounds to get that tree established, it's a better use of money. You know, we work with a number of products here. We work with a biochar product, 
So it's uh, it's a, it's the sort of some of the soft finds from the chuck when you produce charcoal mixed with sort of worm cast and seaweed, and and that's been shown that if you mix some of that in with the tree when it goes in, that really helps decrease stress. It really helps tree establishment. We work with a product called Tree Pans, and and basically that's a, a product that goes around the tree to keep the strimmers away from the tree, and also it it stops grass competition you know grass is is a massive killer of trees because it sucks away the moisture it stops any rain from getting to the tree roots so you know keeping the grass at bay is a great way to help your trees get established and you know that product also keeps the strimmers and the mowers away so the difficulty is it's tree planting is sexy i.e the bit where the spade's going in the ground the mare comes out the kids come out the press come out but there's no one there doing you know press articles about the, the people that are caring for those trees afterwards and, and i think that's where it's quite a challenge and you know that's why we've ended up in this numbers game of tree planting tree planting numbers because that's what the press and media is interested in they they, they like p- pictures of people out planting trees it, it's not quite as sexy people out looking after and pruning trees and you know going out and doing a taking off a few small branches isn't that sexy but actually it's massively important if you want those trees to establish I just want to just say something here before we move on, because I think there's still more to say there. When you're talking about grass competition, you're talking about when the tree is still young before it's established, because once it's established, that grass isn't really going to be a problem for it, is it? That's right. That's right. I mean, you're you're potentially the first three to five years are the key times to get a young tree established. If a tree hasn't established after five years, it probably isn't going to establish and you may be better off replacing it. And, mm. and, and part of the issue is, you know, the grass roots form quite a matted layer. They're in the top inch or two of the soil. And basically they suck up any moisture that hits the soil before it even gets to the tree roots. So you really need to make sure there's no grass around your tree, probably for at least, you know, a meter around the tree to allow that any moisture and the other benefit of that is that by having the soil open as long as it's protected is that the soil pores stay open so when you do water the rain doesn't just run off you know and where we're getting these these highly baked soils you, you if you water a highly baked soil the water runs off so you, you want the water to be slowly getting into the soil so actually for you for your listeners if you've got a street tree and you've got an old bucket put a bin liner inside it Put a little hole in one end, sort of using a nail, and and then fill the fill the bin liner up with a with a with a bucket with a hole in it, and put that on top of your tree. Fill that up, and then the water will slowly come out of that bucket over an hour or two, and that water will actually get into the ground. It's far better than standing there with a hose, you know, just adding a bit of water for two or three minutes. Um, what you want is deep watering to encourage the roots to go deep, and it gets a much stronger tree. That's great. And then the other thing I wanted to touch on was. When we're talking about strimmers, that's a UK word for what in the US they'd call a weed whacker, or in Australia we might call a whippersnipper or a brush cutter. Yep. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's yeah. right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a funny word, strimmer. It's, yeah, I've, I've never heard that word until you, I heard you guys sort of talking about that. So, yeah, that's funny. We just call it a whip in my workplaces. Actually, I think I brought that in. I had a boss who used to call it a whipper, and then I just call it a whip. So, I like that word, whip. <laughs> unfortunately they all damage the tree equally as badly <laughs> yes <laughs> and on behalf of all maintenance operators i gotta say i'm sorry because yeah we have a bit of a tendency to do that i mean everywhere i've ever worked i try and discourage it but you know you walk around town and you do see it and you're talking about these massive investments of money in, in you know time and you know you know these trees are so good for the public good and then you have these what we call petrol cowboys sort of turn up and they just ring bark these trees and just do so much damage, even if it's not going to kill the tree that day, 
you know, it's going to weaken that tree over time. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. I mean, and that's partly been the race to get round and, and, you know, as, as contracts get cheaper and cheaper, the grounds mm. maintenance teams are having to race around to get stuff done. So actually, mm. in this race to the bottom for better value mm. doesn't necessarily give you better value. So, I, I, you know, some of it's training, some of it isn't just on the guys on the ground and girls on the ground. I, you know, it's 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 the one frustration of my career is I've yet to be able to find a way to get that across that, you know, please don't race, please take a bit more time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what are some of the other factors that can harm the success of trees in an urban setting? So we talked about the lack of watering. We talked about the strimmers or the whip, <laughs> the whippers. <laughs> and there's, you know, vandalism as well. Russell touched on that before, you know, people just being bored or just, you know, and I've seen that too. Like I've seen it in Toronto as well. Like after a Halloween night, you just see trees, young trees that are snapped because um, people are just too drunk, right? They were going out right. and they just break the tree. And it's, 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 it's really tragic. And then you have, so those are the three ones that I mentioned or that we mentioned. What else is there, Russ? I can't really think well, off the top I, of my head. Um, so we've just done a scheme in Northampton where we've, been working now with the community group to get trees back in their street where they haven't been probably for 30 years and it's been a really successful scheme residents have helped raise money residents are watering the trees yet we had one that was that was that had the top pruned out of it because somebody thought it was going to interfere with their cable tv signal mm-hmm. so you know and i've had cases in bristol where you know you get called out because the tree is blocking the reception from my satellite dish when actually their satellite dish doesn't work. The cable's coming in under the tree, so it's nothing to do with the tree. So a lot of it is due to misconceptions. You know, people want views. People get worried about light. And there's lots of reasons that people dislike a tree. I mean, there's a there's a slight there's a slight joke in the sector that people love trees, but just not the one that's outside their property, <laughs> which, you know, sums up the challenges of an urban tree. And, you know, people move all the time. So it's important to continue to engage with residents because, you know, if, if, a, if a resident moves every seven or eight years, that, that means, you know, from a, during a tree's lifetime, it might have 10 or 12 or 15 owners. You know, not all of those are going to like trees. So we've mentioned a few products so far. Are there any other products or brands that you guys like to use as professional urban foresters? No, I guess, I, I, you know, I, we've got quite a tried and tested formula now you know we use the tree pans we use the carbon gold and then we tend to double stake and we tend to put cages on our trees again to stop the vandalism uh, so they're just a straightforward simple wild mesh cage you leave about half a meter at the bottom otherwise they get filled with garbage and they can be set alight and then the other key for me is is about where you're growing your plants and actually it's something in the uk we've really had to come to terms with and if i look to australia and new zealand where your border controls are much much better it's something we didn't really think about. There was a race to the bottom to produce tree, cheaper trees, which meant we were sending UKC to Europe to grow it on and importing pests and diseases. So actually, it's about thinking about where that tree is coming from is the other key thing for me. And, and so now we're seeing a lot more British-grown trees because we've had massive issues here. And you know, we we we, we had Dutch elm disease in the seventies. Now we've got emerald, you know, now we've got ash dieback. You know, we've got the emerald ash borer now coming across Europe. We've got things like the oak processionary moth that are now in the UK. And, and these are pests and diseases that are causing massive public health issues, as well as seeing large chunks of the urban tree population being lost. So I think to me, you know, investing in a in a good tree that's come from your local nursery so that you can see where it's come from. And if there are any problems, you can go back is really important. 
And I guess part of this podcast is we're an industry podcast. So I guess I wanted to know what you guys as professionals are using. Are there any arborists who are listening who might, you know, like, for example, I like Felco. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fine. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, in terms of other products, yeah, we, we love our Felco secateurs and, and we tend to use our silky saws for pruning. And, you know, again, great tools uh, that work really well for us, to be honest. And what about you, Terry? What do you reckon? Yeah, I think I got I got a I got Falco Secateurs for Christmas this year, and <laughs> so far they've been really good. Thank you, Russell. No um, <laughs> but yeah, I think like Bulldog Bulldog does really good stuff as well. You know, really sturdy, sturdy quality. You know, tools to you know your spades and such. So definitely, there's yeah, there's you know there's stuff out there. There's definitely stuff out there for sure. Um, in terms of hardware, in terms of you know the other stuff, like I'm I'm gonna go back to the whole digital thing. You kind of need to maintain your inventory, your tree stock, mm. in in a efficient way, right? So I was gonna touch on tree plotter that we use. So that's yeah, that's that's one other thing. But I think we can do like a whole other hour session about about that. Really. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned tree plotter for arboriculture. That's a great one. I've never heard of that, so I'll have to look into that. That sounds very interesting. As a maintenance operator, we had one that's a similar sort of thing. It's called service autopilot, where you'd be able to sort of track jobs and, yeah, the boss would be able to track where you are and GPS track you and stuff and make sure you're, you know, not down at the pub or whatever. So (laughs) that's a good one. And, yeah, I I guess let's just move on to a fun one now. So a bit of a fun question. In your own words, what is a tree? Russ, do you want to go first? Is he there? Yep. Sorry. Yeah. I'm just thinking, actually. (laughs) 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 Like we, well, so a tree is an organic living being, right? (laughs) Um, We're taking us back to the very, very basics of this. Oh God, this is going to be embarrassing. This is really difficult, actually. I mean, I, know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, a tree is something you should be able to touch. It should be something you can hug. You know, I like large trees, but yeah, it's yeah, that's a difficult one. Yeah, because it means so many different things to so many different people. Yeah. Oh, you should hear John's John Parker's answer. <laughs> I won't tell you what, what it is, but you should go back and listen to it. Oh no, I, I, a lot of my family members sort of rolled their eyes, but. What he said is 100% correct, but unless you yeah, really we'll know, know that's cool. go back and listen to it. But I want to hear what you guys think. Yeah, no, definitely. I guess, yeah, I guess it's really difficult because there are so many, I mean, I guess one of the benefits of the where we are now is there are hundreds of trees you can choose from and they all come in different shapes and sizes and colors. And I think that's what's exciting. I mean, I talked about the Victorian legacy that we were managing now. At that time, there were limited species. And so actually, we're in a very exciting time, even with climate adaptation, to be able to plant so many different trees. And so areas where you couldn't put a tree in now, there probably is a tree that fits it, is there? You know, there's a fastidious tree, there's a, you know, a, a more upright tree. So yeah, to me, I guess a, a tree is something that fits in its location and that the residents enjoy. And as simple as that. And what about you, Terry? Have you got any more to add other than that it's an organic being? Yeah, obviously it's like a member of our community, right? Like they're just much more wow. long-lived than us. Mm. And we need to kind of take that same care and love that we would to our grandparents and, and children and stuff. So, And they give us that return. You know, they give us those those different ecosystem benefits back, right? So we need to kind of consider them as 
as a part of our, I know this sounds really corny, but they are, they're part of our community <laughs> and they're just much more permanent members of a, you know, of a particular area. <laughs> oh, it's, but that's really interesting because people get really hung up on what they call old heritage buildings. But why? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why? But they don't get as hung up on old heritage trees. You know, mm-hmm. maybe they should do. Yeah, yeah. There, there has been a swing towards towards doing that, especially in well, in Canada, you get your, you know, your heritage trees and stuff, and here you get your veteran trees, and and people are interested in it, but they're not given the amount of importance as I think they should be getting, you know. But but yeah, and and I guess I guess that's what I meant when I <laughs> with my tree mm. definition. Like, I think that my personal definition sort of revolves around that organic being thing too like it you know it's kind of crazy to think because you know they move so slowly you know maybe they don't necessarily you know move as quickly as us or something like that but they are a living being and that is something that's kind of like no it's kind of weird and deep to think about that absolutely and like you know you see some different sectors of the industry being like yeah it's green infrastructure and that might give it a kind of notion that they're not as living you know because you kind of compare infrastructure to your your bridges and your buildings and you, if you put green into it then you just mean you know your your trees and your tree canopy so that might take the the life out of you know the meaning for for some for some people like i don't know if there is a way to describe that just like de disconnecting from from the trees as living things just by calling them green infrastructure right mm. And I think that's why we do a lot of work with schools, because actually there's generations coming through with limited engagement with green and trees. You know, I've done planting events mm-hmm. up in Scotland where children live in high rise tenements and they don't have gardens. And and so I remember we did a we were doing a ride around a bunch of schools in Glasgow to raise money for tree research. And actually we got to one school and the kids wouldn't come off the playground and sit on the grass to learn about trees because they weren't mm-hmm. used to doing it. They were worried about what was in the grass. Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, any schools planting, you can do any engagement with kids you can do. And as a sector, we can do is really important because there's lots of people that haven't had the benefits that I did growing up of being allowed to roam, you know, being allowed to climb trees. It's all getting a bit frowned upon. People are worried about kids climbing trees. Well, why? Yes, I might fall out and break an arm, but that's part of growing up. Mm, Totally. Well, I mean, look, in Australia, if the grass is long, you might actually have a real reason to worry about going into long grass. (laughs) But sort of, yeah, in other parts of the world, that may not necessarily be as logical. <laughs> well, then maybe, yes, keep your grass short, but please encourage kids to sit on it when it is short. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, God. We, we don't have as many things here that can kill you, so I guess we no. maybe look at it slightly differently. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm interested, you know, I, I'd be interested from the sector. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but I mean, yeah. Daniel. I mean, do you, do you, do you see that same thing over in Australia in terms of the generation coming through schools at the moment doesn't have as much of an interaction with nature? That's that's a. It's hard for me to say because I mean, I guess the only kids that I sort of come into contact would be family members, and all the family members I can think of, like we don't mind running around with our bare feet unless there's bindies around, which are like I don't know if you guys get bindies over there. Do you get bindies? Do you know what they are? They're like, I guess they're like a ground covering yeah. thing, similar to a no. clover, but they have a little seed pod that sticks to your feet and it bloody hurts when you get them in your bare feet. So, you know, if it's a right. lush, grassy yeah. field, yeah, we've got no worries about taking our feet off. But, you know, I guess, I guess most of my family and my friends who were, I mean, I'm 30, so 
probably don't have too much interaction with school kids, but yeah, anyone I can think of, I think we're generally, maybe we don't have the knowledge about trees or we may not, you know, say like, oh, I feel connected to nature or something like that. That might be a bit hippy dippy, like, you know, secretly I do feel like that, but um, <laughs> I think we all yeah, do I guess, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I guess, no, I think bare feet in the grass, even even when we probably shouldn't be in the grass, you know, if it's long grass or something like that. Yeah, I think I see maybe it is different over here. I'm probably not in a position to be commenting. And, and please stick with it because I think that's really important. And I think that's what we're having to do a lot of work here in the UK is to, to re-engage with, with kids that, you know, don't have access to green space, don't have access to parks, don't have access to back gardens. And, and actually, if we don't engage with those kids, that we have a whole generation coming through that doesn't appreciate, you know, where things are good for them and, you know, and, and the benefits, you know, people, we know that you're getting out in the countryside, getting out in, in your park can help massively with your health. And, you know, the UK has a big obesity issue at the moment. And, and part of that probably is because kids don't access their parks, maybe not even know their parks exist. We did a planting event once and we had local schools come out to plant and actually half the kids weren't interested in planting the trees it was the first time they'd been allowed to dig a hole. They found worms. They found things in the soil. And that was more important to them than planting the tree. But that's good as well. And the funny thing is a lot of kids might be afraid of worms, but, I mean, that worm has got to be a lot more afraid of you than what you are of it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine anything more scary than six or seven ten-year-olds <laughs> staring down at me. Pick you up, put you in their pocket, like, I'm going to take it with me. And yeah. I'm like, no, put it back in the soil. Put the worm back in the soil, please. <laughs> but, Terry, do you remember we, we, did a, we did a planting about a month ago, just before Christmas, yeah. and it was interesting because it was very poor soil in parts of this park and actually the kids got really into the fact that why are there no worms in this hole where there are in that hole yeah that was that was quite interesting i was in charge of two tree tree holes i guess but there were kids like look you know they're finding worms and they just dropped everything they would just look at it and then another hole they would find a lot of like uh fragments of you know not ceramics but like you know old old things and they would just pick it up yeah, just I couldn't get them to plant the tree. It was just like, guys, I'm on a time schedule. I need the tree in the ground. Please, let's go. Yeah. Let's go. They're like, yeah. what? They're living in tree time, though. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly, yes. that's it. And they, and they loved it. Like, I think if you give children the opportunity to do that and engage with their natural environment in, you know, ways that are more what's the word in, in ways that are more intense than actually just walking by or walking through it or looking at it at a distance and they're going to love it. Mm. Like. And that school was interesting. We got feedback afterwards where the teachers were like, well, they really weren't wanting to come out and plant. I mean, it was, it was a grim day. It was gray. Thankfully it wasn't raining when they came to plant, but actually the feedback afterwards, they had amazing time. When can you come back again? So, you know, many teachers may not have had much in, in engagement with nature either. I think, you know, in our, in our inner cities, so yeah yeah like being rh right like russell were you telling me the story of how the teacher wanted to plant the tree upside down one time yeah so yeah so i was i was it was actually it was my it was my it was my kid's school and um i kind of assumed we live out in the middle of nowhere i live in a valley i don't have any neighbors so we're a little village school you kind of assume that everyone's farmers or foresters they all know what they're doing so i was working with some kids and, and i looked over to my horror and saw a head teacher looking to plant the tree upside down and that was quite 
a challenge because how do I say to the headmistress that um, the tree's the wrong way round and without really embarrassing her because, you know, the kids looked up to her. Um, so we had a little joke and um, we, I took hold of the tree and we, we put it at different angles to talk about which ways. And uh, you could see it, the light bulb moment in her head when she was like, oh, maybe that was upside down. But yeah, that's a challenge because I guess to me, don't make assumptions. Yeah, that's a really good point because you, do, you don't know what you don't know. And that might sound obvious to put the roots in the ground, but maybe people don't realize how trees actually are uni sort of, well, the, at least the water veins are unidirectional. No, but then, but then, yeah, and then if we make that assumption that they do, then actually, when they go on to become developers, they don't appreciate that the roots need space. So actually, you know, if they don't know about it at a younger age, then when they go on into their careers that may have massive impacts on trees, if they don't understand about them, it's very then difficult to chat to them because they've just come from a no knowledge base at all. Absolutely. So, do you have any advice for up and coming arborists? Yes, I, I just, I, you know, I just finished my training a couple of years ago, so I'm a bit more fresh from that one. But I think the main thing for me is, you know, like keep learning. That's number one. B um, or number two is network, like talk to people. Because I know like there's this misconception, well, there's this stereotype of arborists and tree people in general that they don't like other people. And I think mm. it's really important to talk to other people and have that kind of, um, you know, connections with others that are doing the same thing as you. And we can get into that at a different time, obviously, but that's like the second thing. And the third thing is don't be, you know, don't be afraid of, of experiencing things which you might've thought that you're never going to touch upon, right? And this is from my, I guess, personal experience where, you know, I went into forestry, I wanted to go into the sciences and, you know, two years after graduating, I'm here and I'm working with software mostly and i think it's been such an amazing and eye-opening experience for me to like realize that oh like trees are not just about it's not like urban forestry is not just about the trees themselves like it's such an interdisciplinary field where you can do literally anything and still mm. you know be a part of the urban forest community and i think that's like keep your mind open that's basically mm. what i wanted to say and obviously there's your codes of ethics that you need to follow um, as well as well but mm. yeah that would be kind of my three my three points there yeah I, I agree on that i think you know networking meeting new people learning new things looking outside of the country you work in you know for for other examples there's some great work going on around the world and if you don't if you don't look outside your country it's very difficult to find it and don't be afraid to try new things you know certain projects might fail learn from it i mean um it, it was only when we were doing uh, victorian avenue replacement planting that we looked into the history and it turns out actually the victorians got a lot of stuff wrong in the uk you know the avenues mm -hmm. that we manage now may not have been the avenues they first planted but actually looking into the history we found that stuff had failed and actually everyone now looks at the victorians and go what an amazing landscape they've left in the uk <laughs> well actually that's what we need to be doing. So in 150 years, people are saying, look at the millennials, look at what they've planted. Isn't it amazing? So yeah, try new things. There is absolutely no reason why the Victorians should get it more right than the millennials, is there? Like with Not all the all, knowledge no. that we have. Yeah, yeah. And we, we have more choice. There's, there's a lot more opportunity. We, you know, there are more trees to play with to, to try different things. And, but some will fail and you just have to, you know, yep, we tried it, it failed, we got it wrong. Let's try something else. And Russell, as an employer, what do you look for in an arborist? Ironically, it's not arboricultural skills. I'm looking for people skills. And Terry briefly touched on it a minute ago, you know, that um, 
we're we're multidisciplinary now. We we have to deal with everyone. We deal with planners. We deal with engineers. We deal with the public. We deal with communities. We deal with people that provide money. And and actually, soft skills are really important. I'm looking for someone that's outgoing. I'm looking for someone that's willing to take a risk and 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 try new things because. You know, the arboricultural side is important, but actually some of that is very easy to learn. It's very difficult to train someone in their 20s or 30s soft skills. So, you know, again, I guess as a, as a you know, my, my background going through university was I was a waiter. Actually, that brought me into contact with lots of different groups of people, lots of different types of professions, which I had to deal with. And actually, that's been really important to me. So actually, as you do your training, as you, as you grow up, try different jobs because actually learning those soft skills is going to be more and more important. And that's what I look for is, is really good soft skills and you know the ability to try new things. That's fantastic. Thank you, Russell. Is there anything else that you guys would like our listeners to know about? Yeah, that's a really exciting question, I guess. There, there's so many things to look at. There's so much challenges in the sector. Um, yeah, we've briefly talked about tree plotter, you know, which is a, a system we work with, which is cloud-based, and it, it, you know, it's about empowering more people to understand their urban forestry. And, and actually, I think there's a whole podcast just talking about technology and how we can move things forward. So, hmm. if you're not, you know, we, we find a lot of people here in the UK are doing, still doing stuff on pen and paper. They're still doing stuff on Excel spreadsheets, and it's just not efficient use of your time. You know, there are great systems out there. If you're not using any, start to look at how you can help yourself to to do your job better. Yeah, that's a really good one. That's um, absolutely. What about I'm, you, Terry? Is there anything that you? Um, oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> I, I think if we're if we're talking, you know, to arborists or or urban foresters or even just people, just try and you know open up your mind and and embrace technology a little bit. Just like Russell said, like lots of people are still using their you know PDFs and paper maps, but I think tech can do a lot of really positive things in all sectors of, 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 you know, in all parts of the sector. So I think that would be really good to just, you know, be inspired and maybe just try and open, open yourself up to like embracing, embracing tech and what it can do because it is powerful. Right. So mm. that's like, as, as a millennial, I think, yeah, true plotter, definitely go for it. Uh, call me up if you need any info. <laughs> um, that was a shameless plug there, but <laughs> But you know, as as like for people in general, like people that might be more aware of, of of the tree world and and more aware of the you know the organic world, try and use tech to connect with maybe the younger the younger people, and they'll they'll definitely come back to you. Great yeah. advice. Thank you so much for coming on the show, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having us. That was really fun. Yeah, thank you for having us, and uh, we look forward to listening into more podcasts in the future. It seems like urban forests are more successful when the community is involved, especially during the planning and establishing periods. This can be as simple as giving community members watering cans to irrigate the young trees, which not only saves council money, but also fosters a sense of ownership among the locals. And it can also be stuff like teaching young people how to formatively prune a tree and allow them to guide the shape of a young tree that will hopefully eventually be there a lot longer than they themselves will be. It's important to keep in mind existing trees during the early stages of property development because it takes a long time for a tree to grow and it has many forms of value including economic. If you haven't listened to our other two episodes on forestry I'd recommend you check out episodes 18 and 22 and then move on to the rest of our back catalogue while you wait half a week for our next episode to come out. 
so you were saying like you've been on another Aussie podcast before. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was with um, with Dan Mullins, who's a who's a radio host in in Australia, and I met him when I was walking the Spanish uh, pilgrimage called Camino de Santiago. <clears throat> so I met him and Bill Bennett, who's also a film producer, and his wife. Um, and yeah, so I just <laughs> I just met them when I was having like a really bad day, and they took me out for lunch, and then we kind of kept kept in touch ever since. And one day Dan told me to um, well, he asked me to be on his podcast. So um, that was my Australian podcast <laughs> experience. 